Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Writing it down in the ledger, Will. Well, uh, I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Nadine Terman, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, we are monitoring that big tech hearing on Capitol Hill. It is now entering its one millionth hour. Just kidding, it's fifth hour. We'll break in with any big headlines as they cross. Plus, Nike under pressure calls for a boycott growing in China. How our traders are navigating this name. And later, Nadine is gearing up to head to the pitcher's mound Why she thinks the travel-related stock could be the ultimate reopening play. But we start off with a roller coaster ride on Wall Street today. The Dow erasing a 300-point loss to finish the day with a 200-point gain. The Nasdaq was down as much as a 1.5%, reversing to finish the day slightly higher. All three major averages, in fact, finishing the day in the green. So pretty remarkable turnarounds today. What'd you make of the action, Guy? Well, first of all, you said put it in the ledger. See, you're not as nearly as woke as I am, or BK for that matter. If you put it in the blockchain, Melissa, nobody would have to worry about it. I know BK is nodding his head in agreement. That's number one. Number two, (laughs) I got to tell you, the market looked extraordinarily vulnerable to me this morning. Mm -hmm. Given the comments that Tim made yesterday, the follow-through on the downside, I thought today was going to crater. The VIX at one point today was north of 23. It closed below 20 again. You know, I can't really pinpoint the reason for the reversal, but it was it was extraordinary, in my opinion, given the backdrop of everything we've been talking about. And oh, by the way, I think the comments about the SEC looking into SPACs a little more closely, I thought that really was going to derail the broader market. I was, as usual, R-O-N-G wrong. Yeah, the volatility index came down. We had rates tamed, Tim. What'd you make of the whole thing? Fifteen percent fall in the VIX uh, Mm -hmm. from around 11 o'clock on a two and a half percent rise in the SMH just off of those lows in the morning. And again, finishing above a key level. You you hadn't seen this long of a run below the uh, the 50 day on semis in really outside of the covid beat down really from as you were back in mid 2019. So important levels at least staved off for today. I think a lot of this. Uh, I don't think the story on equity, the fundamental setup for investing in equities has changed really that much at all in the last three weeks to a month. I think a lot of this is quarter end, month end concerns. A lot of folks are worried about selling into this quarter end. I think some of this has almost been uh, reflexive and self-fulfilling. So an amazing turnaround, Nadine, but you're pointing out that volume looked kind of anemic. That's right. When you look at the volumes, they've been declining meaningfully. So even though to us investors, volatility has seemed high because intraday, intrasectors, sectors, interest styles, it, we felt more gain and pain this week. Uh, volumes have actually declined, not just week over week, month, month over month. They're the lowest since December 2020. And so you can look back. Uh, I think I have a chart that you can take a look at. And, you know, as an investor, what we're seeing here is that uh, a lot of these moves are, don't have a lot of strength. Mm. So, BK, what do you think? Because we did see a lot of strength in, for instance, small caps, which was up decisively mm-hmm. today, turning mm-hmm. around um, the sagging sessions it's had recently. Um, but the weakness in big cap tech seemed to be concerning, because even though we had that massive turnaround in the Nasdaq overall, we had Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft. They all underperformed um, pretty dramatically the broader yeah. index. 
Yeah, they all lagged quite a bit. And when you look at what were the leaders, it was industrial cyclicals. Uh, you know, the Dow uh, one, uh, you know, the Dow Jones is something we kind of forget about. But those are the stocks that are powering this. So I go back to the framework that I use that I've been using for this market, where the bullish case is that GDP is going to grow and it's going to grow faster than inflation. And you don't have to worry about earnings erosion. The bear case is inflation is going to be faster than earnings growth and it's going to erode your earnings. What we saw today and why rates are so important, because that's exactly where inflation expectations are priced. And what we saw yesterday and today was very good bond auctions. There was some demand there, whereas last week it was terrible. So to me, from where I'm sitting, you say, okay, fine. At these rates, we've got some bond, we've got some bond buyers in here. I don't have to worry about rates spiking right now. And then therefore, let me look at, let me start buying the names that are going to be better when the economy takes off under the reopening. I think that's the dynamic we have, but it still leaves out that big cap tech because I think you're still going to get some inflation, which is going to hurt anything that has a high P.E. ratio. Feels like we're in a box right now, Guy. And we're in a box in that we are capped by uh, wherever we think rates are going to be um, at this point. We are in a box because we we are on hold. There's no real catalyst in terms of the, the cyclical trade at this point. We're just sort of waiting. Yeah, and if I could, if I was, you know, in a a decent mime, I could do that whole thing in a box, and it would be great for the it? audience and, watching. And you're at home, in a box. You're in a four box, which would make it even better. So if you can try that at some point, as that would be tur- entertaining. As it you turns it. out, you blew it, guy. No, it, you know, it's interesting. Nadine <laughs> mentioned volatility. She's quiet. right. I mean, intraday volatility's been there, but it, you know, you look at volatility and measured by the VIX, and again, a couple closes below twenty now. And it leads you to believe that the complacency of the market's there. And there's this belief that, again, all the things that BK, Tim, Nadine talked about don't necessarily matter as there's this backstop. You know, I'm still very surprised at how complacent the market seems to be. I think the headwinds are there. I'm in the camp, by the way, that rates might have leveled off here for a period of time. Mm. But I definitely think you're going to see 2%. I think you're going to see it a lot faster than people think in a 10-year and I don't think that's going to be particularly constructive for stock prices. All right. Well, let's get to Carter. The chart master has the three charts that could tell us where the market is headed from here. Let's get to Cornerstone Macro's Carter Braxton Worth. Carter, what are you looking at? Sure. Just all macro, right, as we await earnings. Uh, really, it's all about the big movements in bonds, and currencies and indices. So let's uh, look at a few charts. I have three items we're going to discuss. First, we're going to look at yields. Then we're going to look at the dollar. And finally, we're going to look at the Russell 2000. Two charts for each, six in total. Here we go. First chart. This is uh, the yield chart, 10-year, over the last six, seven, eight months, basically from the May low. No judgments, annotations, but we all know it's an uptrend. Second chart, it's a very precise uptrend. In fact, it's a mathematically clear parallel channel. And you can see every time, almost like a pinball machine, we have got to the upper or lower band of the channel. We have reversed and moved back towards the middle or the other extreme. And so we, we keep hitting our head up against the upper band here, as you can see. We got as high as 175 or thereabouts in the 10-year. We're here we're at 163. And I think ultimately the sequence calls for lower, that we move back into the middle, lower of the channel. And then that is often what's required in order to go higher, but the sequence would call for that. Here and now, so lower yields on a on a short-term basis. The second uh, is, of course, the dollar, 
And the first chart here is very clear. The dollar has broken above the downtrend line, in effect, for the past year. Now, where can it go? And really, that's the issue. Take a look at the second chart. We're up to a level of overhead supply, if you will, right? We're starting to get into where there's congestion at the 94 uh, plus minus level. So while I think we can inch higher, it's not the all clear that I think uh, is, is becoming consensus that dollar is about to really get going in a big way to the upside. So a little bit up sideways, if you will. Finally, um, the big issue of small cap. So the first chart is uh, for the Russell 2000 is a comparative chart. It's the Russell 2000 versus the S&P. And what we know at the uh, middle of last week, end of last week, the three and six month spread of the Russell 2000 at the S&P had only been wider one other time, going back to the beginning of the Russell in 1978. And that actually happened to be in March of 2000. No analog with a dot-com period, but the point is you get this far ahead of another major aggregate, you typically should get some mean reversion. And we see what's happened to small caps. Russell just dropped 11%, peaked the trough. And then final chart, this is the Russell itself over the past five years with its 150-day moving average. And what we know is that, again, around the middle of last week, it had never been higher above its moving average, 150, uh, going back to inception 1978. So I think a very important message here is that crowded, steep, overdone, and that it's large cap, the better bet than small. Um, Carter, may I please ask for a bonus chart? And that would be just straight up <laughs> S&P 500. Well, so interestingly, we know that you've had a drawdown of 11% in the NASDAQ 100. You just had a drawdown of about 11% in the Russell. And ultimately, the S&P is sort of playing the middle. It's got it's this perpetual uh, rotation machine that uh, doesn't allow it to ever draw down that much. But ultimately, and history bears this out, you do get mean reversion back to trend. And so I think the S&P will also come down to its 150 moving edge as the NASDAQ uh, 100 and the NASDAQ have already done. All right, Carter, great to see you. Thank you. Very nice fireplace. Um, by the way, in case you're just tuning in, in case you couldn't follow all the charts, in case you have forgotten what Carter said, which is entirely possible, we have uh, come up with this graphic, Carter's bottom line. Here's a summary. Yields down, dollar sideways, small caps down, and the bonus chart, which is not on here, S&P 500 down to the 150-day moving average. Guy Dami, you put all these things together, these charts, you shake them up, and what do you get in terms of your interpretation of the markets? Well, it's an, I think it's a constructive. Uh, I think it's a constructive backdrop. If yields were to come down, I think that's one of the concerns the market have. Sideways dollar. You know, Tim mentioned that the dollar is a bit of a wrecking ball. I think that's like a Katy Perry song or something. But when the dollar does rally, it serves as a wrecking ball. But if the dollar to sort of go sideways, I think that's encouraging for the broader market. So I think everything Carter speaks to, less the S and P trading down. You know, be, you know going back to a mean reversion, is very constructive. I am not in that camp, as I mentioned. I do think yields go higher. I also think the dollar is going to top out here. I feel like BK is a Katy Perry fan, so I'll pose the same question to you, Brian. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've got Katy Perry playing in the other ear. This one, I've got the uh, show coming in. So it's amazing, <laughs> uncanny uh, how you're able to predict that, <laughs> Melissa. Um, but nonetheless... Uh, you know, the dollar is a global wrecking ball, right? The dollar is the new VIX. The higher it goes, the worse it is for financial markets, okay? And so that, you need to be very concerned about that. It does look like we have hit some overhead supply, so maybe it stalls for a bit. 
Uh, the one thing I would say is, you know, if you're trying to hedge your bets here, trying to figure out where to position your portfolio, I would skew much more towards the large cap cyclical and industrials. And the reason why is even if the economy starts to taper off, you're going to get an economic stimulus bill that will likely uh, be for stimulus and for green energy and those type of things. So skew your portfolio that that way, start selling off your tech, and that'll kind of balance you out and potentially hedge you through this period. But the bottom line is I think the easy money's been made in this market, and it's a lot more difficult to kind of analyze what's going on now. By the way, apparently nobody on this panel is really a Katy Perry fan because it's Miley Cyrus who... Miley Cyrus. I knew it. Nadine knew it. Nadine knew it. All right. Um, We got to get some breaking news here on the bank. I was about to say it. (laughs) Steve Leesman's got all the details. Steve. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, thanks. It's just the last hour of the Federal Reserve announcing it's going to continue those restrictions on bank uh, payouts uh, until June 30th. They were set to expire uh, March 31st, but they're going to continue them for another quarter for most banks. The restrictions are going to lift after June 30th for banks who do well in the stress test. That is, their capital levels are above those required under the stress test scenario. Restrictions will remain for those banks that are that don't do well in the stress test until September 30th. So um, I think this news was expected, Melissa, to happen sooner or later. It looks like it's just a little bit later. So the banks over the last two weeks have uh, won one and lost one. They lost the one where they uh, when the Fed did not continue the exemptions to uh, reserve requirements against uh, reserves and treasuries. Uh, but they won this one in a fashion in the sense that over the course of the next quarter, they'll be able to put those uh, dividends and share buybacks back on. All right, Steve, thanks so much. Steve Leisman. Um Nadine, I'll go to you. The KRE ETF, by the way, was up almost 3% today. You know, and, and we look at here at the banks, um, just harking back to uh, talking about rates and the dollar, I'm much more with what Guy said, which is if you've got treasuries potentially going up to 2%, our risk range is about from 155 uh, to 175 for the 10-year. Um, that's going to be very, very different for stocks, different for banks, uh, which obviously would be bullish for them. So uh, we're, we're long on banks. We're long on financials in, in that type of spirit. Yeah. Tim, you're expecting this? I think you had to be expecting it. Mm-hmm. I think the backdrop for banks, we, you know, so great. You know, the XLF has outperformed the S&P by 20% since November. Banks XLF are about 44%. Some of this is Berkshire. Some of this is Blackstone. But money center banks, uh, look, we know the pressure's off the banks right now. Uh, that's good news for investors. The balance sheets are as good as they've ever been. Uh, and if the yield curve is where we think it is going to stay, this is, uh, banks are still cheap. Favorite bank, Guy Adami. Blackstone. And we've talked about it for a while. I think this environment sets up for them. And, you know, I actually did know it was Miley Cyrus. I also love Hannah Montana. And I think they both should tour with Eminem, uh, Slim Shady and Marshall Mathers later this summer, early fall. That would be five people that I would go pay to see. Do you know who these five people are? Um Anyway, just name two them people all. Now. Of course I do. I mean, you, they're great. You have the he just exhausted his pop culture knowledge right there. Exactly. Done. <laughs> Still ahead, Nike getting tripped up. The developing story out of China that sends shares lower by more than 3%. We'll bring you all the details straight ahead. But first, Big Tech gets grilled. The CEOs of Facebook, Alphabet, and Twitter entering their fifth hour of testimony before Congress. Did they say anything that should make you rethink these trades? We'll break it all down for you when Fast Money returns. 
You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. The CEOs of Facebook, Alphabet, and Twitter still testifying before Congress on how they are combating misinformation on their platforms. The hearing is now entering its fifth hour. Let's get to Julia Borson for the very latest. Julia. (laughs) That's right, Melissa. Well, it's been a heated hearing and also a very long hearing in which lawmakers have expressed frustration that the companies have not adequately cracked down on misinformation and hate speech. There was a bipartisan focus on the damaging impact of social media on children. A number of representatives saying Facebook and YouTube in particular are addictive and responsible for depression and even suicide. The three CEOs were pressed on their role on the riot on the Capitol, also on suppressing vaccines, and were accused of censorship of conservative voices and also acting more as publishers than as platforms. Twitter's Jack Dorsey saying that they do enforce their policies about hate speech and misinformation because enforcing those guide rails best serves their customers and their business. Some of you will say we're doing too much in removing free speech rights. Some of you will say we're not doing enough and end up causing more harm. Both points of view are reasonable and worth exploring. If we woke up tomorrow and decided to stop moderating content, we'd end up with a service very few people or advertisers would want to use. Mark Zuckerberg defending his company's efforts to crack down on hate speech and misinformation as well. But he said he hopes lawmakers will reform the Section 230 liability shield by holding big tech companies to a certain standard of the systems they need to have in place and their enforcement to remove illegal content. I don't think anyone wants a world where you can only say things that private companies judge to be true, where every text message, email, video, and post has to be fact-checked before you hit send. But at the same time, we also don't want misinformation to spread that undermines confidence in vaccines, stops people from voting, or causes other harms. Many of the lawmakers we've heard from over the past five hours have threatened that regulation is coming and they could be referring to not only reform of Section 230, but also something to regulate these platforms impact on children. Melissa? Julia, the bottom line is, I mean, in order to make any changes to Section 230 or do any other sorts of regulations, the Democrats and the Republicans have to come together. You know, is that very likely according to the industry watchers you talk to? Well, look, it would be a very complicated process to mm-hmm. really implement uh, meaningful reform. But what I do think is interesting, Melissa, is that you have bipartisan support for reform, but for very different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the congressmen we heard from today suggested creating a new 
organization, something similar to the SEC that could regulate tech companies. So we might see a push for a new type of uh, industry watchdog organization that could address these issues of hate speech, misinformation, impact on children, et cetera, similar to the way the SEC oversees the financial industry. Okay, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Um, the SEC oversees the financial industry by enforcing actual laws, uh, creating a new organization to oversee content on social media platforms, according to I don't know what, Tim. I don't know how this will impact these companies. It sounds kind of negative. I don't know. It sounds it sounds kind of like what China's doing right now, which isn't going so well. So or at least what they're talking about doing. So I like I. I thought at least framing the issue, Jack Dorsey, once again, was, I think, very succinct. Um, it's either too heavy of a hand, too light of a hand, or most importantly, what is it the hand that the advertisers are, are going to tolerate and get behind? And that's really all that matters. And, and what we've seen so far is social media is the only game in town. And, and, and therefore, we haven't really seen a hit on these guys. Uh, this conversation goes round in circles. And, and I think ultimately, you know, if you look at the charts, uh, what's going on for these companies right now has nothing to do with what's going on on Capitol Hill. Uh, it really is a function of valuations, where interest rates are, uh, where liquidity trades have been. Apple's as close to, you know, you know a, a lengthy period below the 200-day, or so I should say nearing it, for the first time since, again, May of 2019. That's more what worries me. Yeah, I was going to say people might be tempted to draw a, a straight line between the stock moves that we've seen today or over the past few weeks, for that matter, and what is going on in Washington. But as Tim had mentioned, BK, it sounds like it's much more of an, of an issue of interest rates and where, where you think the markets are going in general as opposed to regulation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, today was a super long thread, as the kids say, rivaled only by the thread that you would have if you actually tried to have some new regulation. So I think the market has just completely ignored it or shrugged it off. The moves in these stocks have a lot more to do. I agree with Tim. They have a lot more to do with rates and what's going on with big tech and all of that in terms of high P.E. ratios, you know, compressing than they do that these hearings. I, I I think investors are just saying, listen, it's not going to happen no matter what. They're never going to get a law passed. So we've got to take the companies as they are. And as long as user growth keep going and as long as advertising rates or advertising continues to grow, then these stocks should be OK. Yeah, we have a chart here that shows a percent off of the 52 week highs, Nadine. Uh, Facebook is only off 8 percent from the 52 week high. Um, Twitter's down by 24 percent. I'm wondering where you where you stand on some of these companies. Sure. When it was down this morning, not just Twitter, but check overall, uh, we just covered some of the shorts. So it wasn't surprising to us that we saw a lot of the markets, including tech, come back into the green. Uh, starting in the morning, you were looking at called six to one upside. So maybe with think it was like 3.7 percent upside and minus 0.6 percent downside. Um, that's great asymmetry. So in my mind, obviously, fundamentals have been good. Uh, they could improve during the year. Um, as companies continue to spend and continue to grow. But in the meantime, you have to trade the chop. It's been really volatile. And so on a day like today, you trade it one way. Tomorrow could be different. So it has nothing to do with what happened in Congress today. Guy, you have a smirk on your face like the Cheshire cat. So I go to you for your comment. No, I mean, I love Nadine dropping asymmetry and trade the chop. I mean, that's old school stuff right there. I understand exactly what she's saying. I'll say this about Facebook, and I've said this for a long time. And I'm not shy about it. I mean, I hate everything about Facebook except the stock. And today I think it traded in the 290s. Your point about 
the recent all-time high. I think it was 304 in September, and obviously it's had a rough go. But they report in April, and everything that Julia said is true. And it's just, there's nothing really redeemable about it, in my opinion. You know, is it addictive? Yes, it's designed to be. All those things are true, yet people aren't leaving the platform, number one, and nor are advertisers, number two. The existential risk, the only risk that I see is if it falls under the auspices of ESG investing, which is possible in today's world. If that happens, Katie, bar the door. I don't know who she is, but you better watch it. Every business, by the way, in the whole entire world wants a product that is addictive. Um, Anyway, coming up, big news for the cannabis industry as New York reaches a deal to legalize marijuana. But why aren't the pot stocks lighting up? We'll bring you the trade. But first, Nike shares falling flat today as the athletic giant faces big backlash in China. The full details from Beijing straight ahead. Stay with us. Fast Money's back right after this. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are following a developing story out of China. Checkout shares of Nike falling more than 3% today on growing calls in China to boycott the company. CNBC's Yunus Yun is on the ground in Beijing with the latest. Videos of Chinese burning Nike shoes circulated online today amid calls to boycott the sportswear giant's clothing. Nike is in the crosshairs after what appeared to be Nike's past statement expressing concern about reports of forced labor of a Muslim minority from the far west Xinjiang region and saying it doesn't use cotton from there. Nike is just one of several brands, including The Gap, Adidas, and H&M, which have drawn Chinese criticism after countries in the West sanctioned Beijing for its alleged abuses of the Muslim Uyghurs. China accounts for 23% of Nike brand sales. Today, Chinese celebrities cut ties with Nike, and people online are calling for the national sports teams to drop Nike sponsorships. So far, Nike stores are open, and its products are available on Alibaba and other shopping sites, unlike H&M's. State media are suggesting that international brands should lobby their own governments to stay in the Chinese market on China's terms. All right. Our thanks to Yunus Yun in Beijing. Tim, you are a shareholder of Nike. What do you think of this? Uh, I think Adidas was down 6% today. I think mm-hmm. uh, Burberry's was down 5.5%. I think, you know, I think Nike's not been afraid to wade into social issues in any country. And Nike's innovation around the world continues to make them a leader. I, I, I'm not terribly worried about this. I'm most worried about Nike's valuation, which is 60 times trailing. They just gave you very good numbers. Look, uh, Nike's numbers were up 50 percent in China. So from one and a half billion to 2.27 billion. That's the number that people want to focus on. Uh, but was that really the reason uh, that the shares have outperformed? I think that the bigger part of the Nike story has been North America, uh, has been innovation. And I, I not run too far away from this one. I'm, I'm not doing anything with my position. To mention valuation guy, could this even at the margin be the reason to take some profits? It makes sense. I mean, when valuation doesn't matter until it does, that's not meant to be glib, but it's true, and that's what happens. So when you have a backstory, first thing people look at is valuation. It's too expensive. They sell it. Now you just got to try to figure out where to get it if you haven't been long or where to get back into it if you sold out. I think 122 for a lot of reasons makes sense. 
That was the lower on Halloween. We're not that far away. And I agree with Tim. I mean, Nike's never scared to sort of take these matters head on. I'll say one thing, though. You know, some of the rhetoric between the United States and the Chinese has gotten pretty interesting. I think today um, President Biden said President Xi doesn't have a democratic bone in his body. And he made some comparisons to Vladimir Putin, which, you know, might not be a big deal. But you, know, you have to wonder again, is this another reescalation of something we've seen over the last four years? Definitely is worth watching. Yeah, China tensions don't seem to be going away um, under this administration. No word yet either on whether or not the tariffs will remain in place or what the course is on tariffs. Nadine, every single time we've heard about boycott, potential boycotts or current or boycotts actually happening against Western brands, it doesn't really materialize. We haven't seen it yet. Right. My only concern, and I agree with both Guy and Tim, is just that this could linger for a while and there could be other elements. So if the administrations are going to have a lot of difficulty in terms of their discussions and negotiations, will this just continue in the headlines? Even if it is a certain percentage of uh, revenues, it's we've estimated a larger percentage of their actual profits. So I'm a little bit more worried from a profit standpoint uh, what some type of slowdown would do in China. And it's really about expectations. People invest with certain expectations. And if those slow down, there's risk to it. So I might look elsewhere for value at this point. If you wanted to see a slowdown someplace in the world, China might not be the bad place to be. I mean, as Tim mentioned, Brian <laughs> Kelly, it's all about North America. North America still has got stimulus going. It's still reopening. China has already sort of seen that stimulus high start to wear off. We've seen it certainly in, in the share price uh, of the various indices over there. So, I mean, maybe this is not as big a deal, even if it is, it is a hit. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a sentiment hit here. I agree. I mean, China reopened before anybody else did. So we've already seen the reopening trade there. And, you know, you know I think, listen, maybe put a tinfoil hat on me, but I just find it very curious that we've had U.S.-China relations go even more contentious over the last couple of days. And then all of a sudden, these so-called grassroots protests pop up. I don't buy it. But, you know, I, and I, so what does that mean for Nike? I think you're all right on the way that it reversed today, and I think you can use today's low as the buy. All right, coming up, a big analyst upgrade on one semiconductor, semiconductor name could have you charging in. The traders are plugging in on this one in a bit. But first, Nadine Terman is taking the mound to pitch her next best idea why she thinks this travel-related stock could be a tax-free home run. That's a hint. Bring you the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Booze, chocolate, and perfume. <laughs> Need I say more? Our Nadine says there is opportunity in one travel-related name, and she's on the mound ready to give us a fast pitch. Nadine, go ahead. Melissa, three things. One, where this company has a long runway to expand their share, 11% of duty-free stores around the world. And you've got small operators who are undercapitalized, willing to sell because their business is hurt. And then you have municipalities who are looking to privatize their airport operations. That's number one. Two, what we see is that the key reopening play, just like you said, Mel, it is luxury. It is travel. So you have airport operators privatizing and then upscaling the travel experience. So think of RH. They just had a massive quarter. But here, they have not, no online competitor in the store, and you're locked in there for an hour. So <laughs> that's a, a great type of monopolistic type of business. And three, an attractive investment. 
free cash flow yield over 40%. We're looking at EBITDA multiples of south of two times if you take out operating leases, less than four times with them. And they've done a great job of cost cutting, 400 Swiss francs out. And most of that is actually labor that they had a concession to do in Europe, which almost never happens. And free call options in China, free call options on having those types of cost cutting stay with debt reduction. Love that type of business. Maybe you can pull up the five year chart. Uh, this kind of tells the story, what happened in COVID and then what you can expect coming out. Uh, so I leave it to you, Mel. I'm a big buyer. We own this in our positions, in our portfolios and uh, duty free. It's a win. All right. BK, you got a question for Nadine. Yeah, I've got kind of a two-part question because I, I'm concerned about one part of it, but the other part would mitigate it. So number one, whenever I go international travel, I get myself a Toblerone because it, <laughs> and I don't pay any duty and it tastes delicious because I'm not paying any duty. But it concerns me because I think international travel is going to come back last. However, that would be mitigated by the fact I'm curious. I've never seen a competitor to duty free. Is there one out there? Is this a monopoly business? If it's a monopoly business, I might go seek out my Toblerone. <laughs> well, one of the beautiful things here is that LVMH does play in this space. But again, what I said is 90 percent of the airport operations, the duty free, are owned by small players that are really hurting. What we love about it, that other free call option, if you want to call it that, is this would be a great takeout candidate for someone like LVMH. But for now, I would play it for Alibaba backing them, Advent backing them, upscaling airport operations and consolidating the industry. Fun fact. Get a, hopefully get a takeout. Fun fact, by the way, Brian Kelly actually did bring us one time from a trip Three giant Toblerones for the Fast Money candy bag, which we then had to by hand break apart in order to in order to eat. Anyway, no more questions. It's time That's to vote. I care. <laughs> it's true. Are you buying Nadine's pitch on duty free, Guy? What do you say? Can you read my smart board for me, please, Melissa Lee? Is that is that it's, in your yes, line of sight? It says, "Love the European Kit Kats at the duty free hashtag Heathrow." <laughs> Yes, hashtag Heathrow, obviously. I appreciate that. I'm with Nadine on this one. I will say one thing. If you're one of those people that shop at the duty-free like you're at the Short Hills Mall on a weekend, you're doing it wrong. That being said, I think she's on to something here. The reopening trade that we haven't talked about makes a lot of sense. Brian Kelly? You know, I was told to use uh, a dark color ink, and all I had was a Sharpie. So I'm going with buy on this, and I'm going with buy for all the other ones, too. I, I do like uh, the idea that this could be taken out, it could be upscaled, and you might be getting out of the bargain relative to what it was before. So I'm a buyer. All right. Tim, what do you say? I, I don't like the fact that BK only once brought us something back, but that's another <laughs> another story. I, I'm a buyer. I'm a buyer of D-Free. That's a plane. I uh, this is an old school EM stock for me. I love the story. Uh, I love the margins and I love the free cash flow generation. And it, you know, relative to its history, I think the stock's very cheap. Wow. What a sweep. But BK brought back a pinata one time from a Mexican Bitcoin conference <laughs> or something right. like that. Anyway, the traders have spoken. That's it is exactly your turn right. out there. Are you buying Nadine's pitch on D-Free? Vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. We'll bring you the results at the end of the show. Up next, some budding news out of the pot industry as legalization continues to grow, get closer. Can investors expect to see more green ahead? Our cannabis king will break that down next.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Blazing news out of New York State today. <clears throat> Excuse me. State lawmakers finalizing a deal to legalize recreational marijuana for adults 21 and over. The bill potentially passing as early as next week, despite what should be good news for the cannabis industry, though. Many pot stocks were flaming out today down. So what gives, Tim? So, so many puns, Mel. So little time. Um, I, you know, I think if you if you look at the New York News, it was uh, you know, as expected, long delayed, expected, in some cases priced in. And the actual news and the detail around uh, legislation that we have so far is that it might be more restrictive for the existing legacy players. We talked about Cresco Labs, CureLeaf, Columbia Care, Vireo. You know, there's there's some public companies, there's some private companies. There's 10 vertical licenses in New York. Uh, and, and there's some issues with how well the legacy players are going are to sit in the new legislation. More importantly, for cannabis, look, it's been a rocket of a year uh, and it's been a big pullback. There's a couple of names that are trading back somewhere just north of the, the Georgia runoff period. So I, I think that while the fundamentals have gotten better, the bar got very, very high for a handful, especially of the of the, the biggest, most popular and, and more importantly, most profitable companies in the space. So, again, Safe Act in New York have basically come out, come to fruition or at least the beginning of this legislation on federal and then the, possibly the second largest market in the world. Uh, very good news, great earnings in the last two weeks, but a lot priced in. I think this is, you know, uh, for someone that runs an ETF, this may sound like, you know, a homer here, but this is weakness to buy. There's nothing here um, that we didn't expect, and the fundamentals are probably very, very strong. I, I just think there's a little bit of a sell the news facts going on here. Yeah. And Nadine? Right. And there's a chart that hopefully you can pull it up and it shows the Russell versus the ETF MSOS, so the cannabis ETF. And what you see here is they look pretty similar. And so we were talking earlier about the Russell having significant pressure, 10, 11 percent until this morning, and then you get a pop up. And part of it is obviously New York. Part of it is comments that Congress and the White House had this week talking about, you know, is something going to happen? Is nothing going to happen at the federal level? And then you see this, and it, there's a correlation here. So just as the Russell was pressured, you're seeing cannabis pressured with a, call it another broad brush like that. So I agree with Tim. This is a buy-the-dip type of opportunity. So um, you look at these things and say, fundamentals got better. Here we go. All right. Coming up, why one Wall Street firm is saying a strategic faux pas by one big tech name could be a major opportunity for its biggest competitor. We got the details and the trade next. And don't forget to vote in our Twitter poll. Are you digging in on Nadine's pitch on Dufree? Let us know at CNBC Fast Money. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is chatting exclusively with RH's CEO. Catch the full interview, top of the hour on Mad Money. Time for a call of the day. AMD analysts at Northland Capital upgrading the stock to an overweight, increasing the price target to 96 bucks, saying Intel's move into the foundry business this week was a major faux pas and will allow AMD to continue to increase its market share momentum. Despite the upgrade, AMD still closing lower on the day. But remember the price action in Intel, Guy? It wasn't very impressive. We saw it spike big time in the after-hour session on the news, up about 7%. And then the next day, it, was just, it fell flat. Yeah, that $68 level we talked about, I think, on the show, first 18 minutes of the show, was sort of the same high, the previous all-time high we made in January of uh, basically this January, I think. So that we talked about needing to close above that. It didn't do it. I don't know if Intel made a faux pas. Maybe they took a bit of a false step. But I do think, it, you know, AMD is a winner here. We've talked about that for a while. AMD does have a five-year head start on their third-generation chips, and it, the stock should be higher. 
I'm surprised, very surprised, actually, that on the back of this call and the back of the reversal in tech, uh, that AMD didn't trade better. I'll stand by it. By the way, 74 on the downside in AMD is sort of your line in the mm -hmm. sand. That was the November 2nd low, I believe. Forced to choose BK, Intel, or AMD. Oh, I was going to throw out an NVIDIA, but you gave me the one or the other, I'll go AMD. But really, it's none of the above. <laughs> right, yeah, none of the above, but I wasn't given that choice either. I wanted to say NVIDIA, but, you know. We'll talk about NVIDIA. <laughs> well, bye. How about that? That's my answer. Never stopped bye. you before. <laughs> wow, everything's going to be a bye from now on. <laughs> BK, wow. Um, Tim Monk, I'll go to you on this one. It's, it's a one-way street with BK. Just buy. So, so I, I, I can play the would you rather or none of the above, yes, and, I, and I would rather Intel. And, and I think you've got a case here where look, we, we know that they've lost massive market share to, to AMD. We know that they've got a couple of years of, of massive investment ahead of them. That's the whole point. We're really excited to hear about the investment and, and the, the, the commitment to innovation by a, a guy that we believe in, a guy that spent a lot of time helping to make Intel what it once was uh, and will again. So uh, I like the valuation. I like it on a discount. Uh, I like the commitment to uh, five and seven nanometer and, and what they're going to be doing you know, in Arizona and other parts. So I think it's a buy. Yeah, it's clear that there is a vision here for, for Intel that Gelsinger laid out, Nadine, but it's a matter of execution at this point. And are you willing to take the gamble that the execution will actually follow? Well, you're right. It's really about duration. Do I want to wait that long? So here I would do AMD uh, just because you're looking at Taiwan Semi. Who are they going to treat better? They're obviously going to treat AMD better. And so I'd go with that horse if forced between the two. But I, I have to agree with Tim that long term, I mean, they're doing the right thing. They're making the right investments. So fundamentally, I would support the business. But in terms of owning a stock, I'd wait a bit. All right. Well, options traders are betting that there is still more upside ahead for Intel. Bonoan Eisen joins us to break down the action. Hey, Bonoan. Hey, how's it going? Indeed, they are. A bit of contrarian uh, view here in terms of Intel, given what we've seen recently in terms of sentiment. So taking a look at the options, calls up pace puts about two to one. And then drilling down a bit further, looking at the implied volatility, options are implying about a 9% move in either direction between now and April 30th expiry. That's in line with what we've seen recently from earnings the last four quarters, keeping in mind that we have seen quite a bit of volatility in that stock around that time. And the trade that really jumped off the tape to me, about 10,000 of the April 30th, 66, April regular expiry, 67 and a half call spreads were bought for $1.04. So you're buying the April 30th, 66, selling the regular April 67 and a half call against that, putting your break even about 108% of current spot. Now, that looks a bit rich, but keep in mind that earnings are on the 23rd or 24th. So really what it is is a crafty way for you to get long, unlimited upside capped after earnings while still paying only about a dollar to get into that trade from now until April 16th. I thought it was a very innovative trade to get long Intel earnings. What do you think of Intel Bonoin at this point? Uh, obviously, I think it's under quite a bit of pressure, and I can understand why the faux pas, so to speak, uh, is causing the, ch the, the shares to um, be under a bit of pressure. But I think that it's a smart way. If I was playing it, I'd be doing it. It's a million-dollar bet, keeping in mind it's a dollar, capping your risk and getting exposure to what is likely to be a catalyst around earnings. Right. So I'm very much in favor of this trade. Bonwin, good to see you. Thanks. Bonwin Eisen. Absolutely. And for more Options Action, tune in tomorrow for the full show. Options Action, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, time is running out. 
And it's a real nail biter. So go vote in our Twitter poll. Are you buying Nadine's pitch on Do Free? Let us know. We'll get you the results and your final trades after this quick break. All right, let's get a check on uh, Bitcoin, BK. Bitcoin was down today. I was wondering what you, what you made of the action. We did get news yesterday also that Fidelity was going to file for a Bitcoin ETF. Um, there's the chart, down 4.6%. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think the Fidelity news is very big. Obviously, they're, they're big players in the space, and if they think they, they have confidence that they're going to get an ETF through, uh, that's pretty good news uh, for Bitcoin. What's happened in the very short term, we have an option expiration coming tomorrow, uh, and it's one of the biggest option expirations that we've had really in the history of Bitcoin. So you're starting to see a lot of this volatility going around that. Tomorrow, well, after the expiration, if we start to see Bitcoin move higher, we know that it was just positioning around that. And, and it looked even today, you know, we saw the, the, the it broaden out a bit at the bottom here. Ethereum started the rally. Bitcoin started the rally. Uh, and so I think it looks like after this option expiration, we could be bottoming and maybe turning to higher here. Uh, the options expiration is the biggest because of the contracts, the number of contracts involved. Uh, the notional amount, the number okay. of contracts and notional amount. So it's a combination of more people and the price being higher. All right. We'll watch it for sure. OK, it is time to find out if viewers at home were buying Nadine's fast pitch on free. It was a barn burner. But yes, yes, yes. America is going shopping tax free style <laughs> and buying up Nadine's pitch on free. So congratulations to Nadine. Good job. Time for the final trade. Thanks, Let's Tom. go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Congrats, Nadine. Great pitch. Uh, Nike. Look, again, back to Nike. I think they, they gave a very conservative guide for 4Q. Uh, I like this weakness to buy. I think the China News overrated. Nadine. I'm still going for BP. There's going to be more inflation. You've got a ship stuck in the Suez Canal, and I heard there's an Iranian missile that hit an Israeli ship. So I like all of that in a discounted European name, British Petroleum. Brian Kelly. Interesting. So I say you buy the green stimmy. Give me the stimmy. First solar FSLR looks interesting here. Uh, Guy, we would be playing time of your life if we were if we're not afraid of lawsuits. Just imagine it playing. Imagine it. Thank goodness. Thank goodness <laughs> that lawsuits trump that hideous song. Constellation Brands, STZ. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.